Homeschool.com, America's leading source for homeschooling information, recorded this live interview as part of our free homeschooling teleconference series. If you would like to receive the schedule for upcoming teleconferences, please send an email to advisor at homeschool.com. So welcome back, everyone. For the next hour, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Oliver DeMille. The topic is Give Your Child a Thomas Jefferson Education. Uh, Dr. DeMille is the president of George Weiss College and the author of A Thomas Jefferson Education. Uh, this book has been widely read in many homeschooling circles, and it's available at gwc.edu. Uh, I've just finished reading the book, and the suggested reading list at the back of the book, there's one for adults and one for children. Boy, I I sure recommend it. It's uh, more than worth the price of the book. So uh, welcome, Dr. DeMille, and thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. I don't know if you heard, but you have quite a fan club on the line here today, a lot of callers coming in from uh, Canada. Oh, we have some great friends up in Canada. So. So apparently they That's have good. a whole uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, support group up there. Yes. In fact, I'm going to open up the line really quickly so that your fan club can say hello. So those people who are from um, Canada who are on the call here, go ahead and press star six and say hello to Dr. DeMille. Hello. Hello, oh, Dr. DeMille. Hello. Dr. DeMille. <laughs> hey, DeMille. Hey, DeMille. You have quite a fan group, quite a following. I guess this is great. Trying to recognize voices. I don't know if I did. Sounded like a couple I knew. We have some callers on the line, too, from uh, New Zealand and Australia. So you have a a good following. Wonderful. So let's uh, launch right into it. In your book, you discuss that there are three types of education. Could you summarize the three? Sure. As you look back in history and, and look at the various civilizations and societies that have existed and gone through their period and then moved on to to, uh, follow-up societies. As you look at their educational systems, it's interesting that all through history there's three major systems of education. Not every nation or society or civilization has all three, but almost all of them have at least a couple of them. And the three systems are the what I call the conveyor-built educational model. Other people have called it that, Kathleen Harward and others the conveyor-built model of education, um, which is where everybody is basically put into a classroom or a school setting in order to be given the same basic material, trained for the very same type of direction or focus in life. And the idea is that there's a set curriculum that they all should gain, all should learn, and that it can be taught almost like on a conveyor belt where you know the students go through first grade, second grade, getting the same thing, Regardless of their individual interests or passions or goals or mission in life or or what they or what they per, uh, personally want to do, um, they all get the same thing because the idea is that there's a basic uh, center core that everybody should have. Uh, the second system of education in history is the professional system. The professional system is designed to train people for a given expertise, be that as a dentist or a doctor or a mechanic or a, you know whatever it is in, in the old times as, a, as somebody who shoot horses, or and I'm sure they do that in, in modern times too. Um, but the professional education is designed, the whole system, the curriculum, the methodology, the way the teaching is done, is designed to train someone for that given profession, whatever their profession is. The third type of education is leadership education, what I often refer to as Thomas Jefferson education because he he was kind of the person I studied first who I saw, you know, wow, he's getting a different type of education than a lot of other people are or at least that are more traditional. And as I looked in his time period, I saw many of the, the great founding generation and then expanding down through history and back in history, many of the great leaders, men and women of the great historians, the great scientists, the great mathematicians and, and uh, statesmen and others got this, this leadership type of education, which is very different from the conveyor belt and very different from the professional mode. In our society, the, the, the conveyor belt model of education is so widespread. We have conveyor belt type, edu- uh, type schools in, in almost every neighborhood. And the professional 
type of education is well understood and well known because people go to law school or, or medical school or an MBA program for their professions or a tech school or, or a training. The leadership model is not well understood. And so my purpose in writing Thomas Jefferson was, was really twofold, the Thomas Jefferson education. First of all, to really introduce our society to this lost concept of leadership education where the goal is to train leaders where it's not specific to job training, it's not specific to a to a given career. Of course, people need to make a living, and of course, later on they can they can get the professional and and career training. But a leadership education is designed to train a certain type of individual who 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 takes virtue and wisdom and diplomacy and courage into life and leads in the home and in the community and in their business. Uh, people with a leadership education tend to be more entrepreneurial. And um, less tied to employment than than people uh, who do the conveyor belt or the professional mode for obvious reasons. The second reason for the book was for those who decided, yeah, you know what, I think this is for me, and I think my children could really benefit from a leadership type education. I think that's more in keeping with their mission and their focus. I wanted to tell them how this has been done in history and give some ideas and some details on how we can do that in our time. You think that we. Um... Can, can everyone benefit from leadership education, or do we choose which type of education we want for each child? Well, you know, in a democratic society where we depend so much for our livelihood and what happens on, on the, you know, the people down the road, our neighbors, our citizens, and their input on things, why wouldn't we want to be in a society where everyone gets a leadership education? The, the reality is that everyone can get a, a leadership, a Thomas Jefferson-type education, and it doesn't in any way stop them or hinder them from pursuing other types of other types of job training, other types of professional education. How do parents get off the conveyor belt and stop giving their children a factory education? Yeah, the key to that is to get off yourself, and and this, by the way, is is the uh, this is the best thing to do regardless of where your children go to school. I know in this venue today, it's it's mostly people who who school their children at home. Um, as as do we school our children at home in in my family Rachel and Rachel and I do, um, but even people whose who, whose kids are in public school, people whose kids are in private school, uh, voucher schools, charter schools, all the various alternatives that are out there, <clears throat> there's a great opportunity for parents to get themselves off the conveyor belt, and by doing so, to get their children off the conveyor belt. It's not as much about where your child sits to study and learn as it is about how they're learning and what they're studying and how their mentor their their leader their teacher is interacting with them so the key the, the key for getting off the conveyor belt is for parents to do it. it there's an old challenge which says how does a generation that was educated on the conveyor belt pass on a great mentorial classic leadership education to the next generation? And the answer is you don't. You can't pass on something you don't know. You can't pass on something you haven't attained. But that leadership education is as close as most of our bookshelves. Almost almost everybody on this call, in fact, I'll bet everybody on this call has books on their shelves that are great, that have great leadership material in them that they either haven't read or haven't thought about in a long time or haven't fully applied. It, it's not that hard to get. It's a matter of parents getting off the conveyor belt because when we set that example when we're getting that leadership education when we're learning in a leadership way and in a leadership mode it naturally passes on to our children wherever they sit geographically for their school experience good role models did you say that you homeschool your children we do we have we have eight children one of them is uh, is cp cerebral palsy and so we've taken advantage of the of the great local uh, public environment that's there for him and the training and the um, and the various uh, uh, therapies that he gets in the public setting. The other ch- seven children we homeschool, yeah. And uh, why did you choose homeschooling? Is it because you wanted to be able to give them this type of leadership education? We wanted, we wanted to help them have the opportunity for leadership education, realizing that uh, I've asked this question before when I've had people who, who read Thomas Jefferson Education and, and were critical from a perspective of, okay, that's great. They can read classics, they can study leadership, but they still got to make a living. They still got to, you know, they still got to have a job. And of course, that's true. And that's why it's great that they can, you know, there's many opportunities 
for people who have a leadership education, just as for people who don't have a leadership education to get the professional training later. But as people have been critical of that, I've learned to simply ask them, the, the parents or grandparents, I, I, I just ask them the question, as you look into the eyes of your children and grandchildren, do you feel that the education they are receiving is up to par with their potential, is up to par with who they are, is up to the standard of who they can become and who they were meant to be and what they were born to do? And honestly, I never get people who say yes unless they're already involved in some sort of leadership focus of education. The, the, the people that I ask who are, who are critical of a leadership or any alternatives or homeschool, when asked that question, will kind of recede back and, and, and ponder and, you know, their, their eyes glance upward and they, their hand goes to their chin and they say, you know, that's a really good point. My children do deserve better than what they're getting. My grandchildren do deserve better than what they're getting. They don't always agree that Thomas Jefferson education is the way to do it. And, and I wouldn't say that it necessarily is the only way for everybody. I think, I think the key is for the parent, the parents, to look at each child and treat them as an individual and help them get the very best education for who they are, to help prepare them for their passion and their mission and their life and their goals and who they want to become. And and for some parents, that means that they put them in a public setting. For some parents, that means they use a, a private or an alternative setting. For some parents, that means homeschooling. And I think that we've all got to be people who really support public school and people who really support homeschool. I think all of us should be more respectful of those choices of parents when they really take the time, when they really think through and look at the look at that individual child or youth and decide this is the best thing for them. Let's help them get get this best preparation that we can because that's that's the parental role and none of us can do it better for someone else's. There's a reason there are children and not somebody else's. Not the states, not the neighbors, not the you know, the mother-in-law or whoever it may be. Boy, I couldn't have agree, I couldn't agree more and you put it so beautifully. Hey, let's take a moment and try to give people a picture of what a typical day is like for a family like yours who is um, <coughs> practicing a Thomas Jefferson approach to their education, who has trained their children in leadership education? Great question. Let me, let me back up and, uh, and give a little bit of background material, because I can't answer the question without, giving a, uh, without defining a couple of terms. Yeah, please, go ahead. What I first want to do is I want to identify what, what, are called, what I call the four phases of learning. Uh, these are not necessarily original to me. I kind of coined this phrase. But as you look through history, you'll find these phases in many different places, and you'll find many, many different educational thinkers talking about them. Basically, there are four phases of learning, and it's important to understand which phase your student is in, your child is in, and make sure that you do the right things for that phase. There's a perspective that says children are just little adults and two-year-olds or four-year-olds should be treated like adults. Sit down in class, you know, pay attention. I mean, anyone who's raised a two-year-old knows that that's just not realistic. Um, and, and the reality is that very often we think, well, but it's more realistic for a six-year-old or it's more realistic for an eight-year-old, which I believe personally is one of the, one of the reasons for the, you know, the high uses of, of, of various drugs and, and other things to get our kids to just sit still. Because it's natural for the six-year-old to want to run and jump. It's really not that natural for them to want to sit and, and just play around. So it's important to understand that there are different phases and the way that you treat these young people educationally in those phases needs to differ based on what they're developmentally ready to deal with. The first phase I call the core phase. The core phase is roughly from zero to eight years of age. Now, in saying that, it's dangerous because all of a sudden we're using conveyor belt terms to say, well, here's the ages of them. So I guarantee that it's within zero to eight. Uh, I guarantee that it's within that age group within about 90 years. Um, <laughs> children are different. And you may have children who are still in core phase when they're 18, and that's okay. You may have adults listening to this who feel like, well, I'm still in core phase and I'm, you know, I'm in my 40s or my 50s, and that's fine. So I don't want to, I don't want to limit those ages too much or make them too hard and fast, but generally, most children are in core phase from about zero to eight. And core phase is a time where the curriculum should be focused on what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, what's true and false. You're giving them a core with which to make decisions for the rest of their life. From whatever your perspective, you as the parents have that right and that responsibility to pass to them your values and, and, and your um, 
uh, perspective on the world. And as they get older, they may they may change that or go different directions. But during that core phase, it's an opportunity for them to learn the basics: what's good and bad. If I hit my sister, you know, are, should there be consequences? And and should those consequences be of the punishment type or of the teaching type? It's the parents have that opportunity to teach those things in core phase. Um, students also during core phase will learn a lot of academic subjects. They'll learn. They'll want to write. They'll start. Many of them wanting to read. Some of them won't want to read that young, uh, but many of them, if not most of them, will. The key during this time, if you want to teach them right, wrong, good, bad, true, false, is to help them learn to work, to play, and to love. And during that time period of working, playing, and loving, there's a key phrase here that goes with it. It's not, Johnny, go work. It's, Johnny, let's work. It's not, Johnny, go play. It's, Johnny, let's play. And the key is that when the parents and and siblings and others, but especially the parents, are working and playing with our people during core phase, we teach them the most important and and the most key lessons they can learn. And as they come to us saying, I want to write, I want to read, I want to paint, I want to work with numbers, I want to do math, that's play and it's natural and it fits and it it just, you know, it naturally, naturally flows. The second phase, I'm I'm sorry I'm talking so fast, we have an hour and I'm trying to, trying to cover a lot, I hope it, Hope it's okay. We can hear all right, can't we? Yes, it's really good. I'm not, I'm not talking too quickly. No, it's great. The second phase is what I call the love of learning phase. This is roughly from eight to twelve. Um, in in girls, it comes tends to come a little earlier than in boys. But this love of learning phase is where the young person, if they've had a great core phase and if they've got parents who are showing them examples of what can be done with education and why it's important and how much you can learn, this is a time period where the young person just absolutely falls in love with learning. What we do in many of our conveyor belt schools is during this very same age period from 8 to 12 is we train them in a a hate of learning phase. We train them to do the bare minimum just to get by on the assignment. We train them to... Uh, you know, a, a lot of different things. We train them not to follow their passions, but to follow the assignment that some expert gave them. We train them to trust the expert assessment of what they learned instead of their own gut feeling of what they actually gained from it. And other things that, you know, that, that can be very, can be very negative in that time period. In contrast, the leadership model of education trains them to be absolutely and totally in love with learning. They, they love it. They pursue their passions. They study math. They study science. They study history. They study what they want to study. But always with a mentor who is setting the example, who is sitting down with them and helping them plan and giving them personalized attention so that they can plan and decide the things they want to do so that when they say, boy, I want to, I want to study, I want to study horses, there's somebody there to say, alright, I'll take you to the library. I'll, I'll set something up with the farmer so we can go visit horses. Or the, the lady that spoke with me at a, at a conference in, uh, in Southern California said, my son really only enjoys surfing. And I said, well, what have you done to help surfing become, uh, become dynamic, to have it become science, to have it become math, to have it become history, to have it become culture? And, and for her, it was an eye-opener to say, wow, surfing you know, really does connect with all those fields. The truth is that what we're trying to learn in an education is the subject of truth. Hopefully, over time, that subject becomes a little more advanced and it becomes wisdom. But when we break it up into these artificial uh, artificial uh, barriers of math, and math doesn't correspond with science, and there's different parts of science, and they have to be all separate, we lose some of that love and that passion and that excitement that comes with learning. And there's no reason to do that unless we only have enough expertise to pass on to one narrow area. But if we're willing to go get the leadership education so that we can, so that we can help the young person see the correlations between all these connections, chemistry and biology and physics and art and etc., if we can help make those connections because we're trying to get that great education, it's amazing how they will just absolutely fall in love with learning. They will seek it. They will want to do it. You'll find that you have all these students who literally are begging you to study. The biggest problem you have, honestly, in, in Thomas Jefferson education with the, with the families out there that have practiced it, the biggest challenge they have once the parents get past the initial get into it and get their own education at, at the high-quality level, the biggest challenge that, the, that they face with their kids is they get 14-year-olds who all they ever want to do is study, all they ever want to do is read, and they can't get them to take out the trash. They don't want to help with, and and they have. I mean, and then you have to you have to talk to them about you know it's not just about the reading, but 
there's so much power in this love of learning phase. If you can get that, if you can set up a system where they just absolutely love learning and fall in love with it and wouldn't, and, and if you give them free time, they want to go pull the encyclopedia and study and learn things, then you've won the battle of leadership education because all great education is self-education. We have a, we have a myth in this country, in North America. We have a myth upon which our whole modern educational system is based and it's problematic. It causes problems everywhere. The myth is, that it's possible for one person to educate another. It's not. The education I have is the education I sought for. The education you have and everybody on the conference call and everybody we know, everybody has gained the education that they went for. You can sit someone down and force them to go through the motion, but actual education and learning and principles that they apply and, and use long term, that happens when we engage it. That happens when we go after it. That happens when we seek it. That happens when we want it. So that love of learning phase is so key. The third phase, and then, and then I'll answer your question. I'm sorry. The third phase is, um, is scholar phase. Scholar phase is roughly between 12 and 17, 14 to, to 18 often for boys. But scholar phase is a time period in their life where they literally do between five and 10,000 hours. And, and I wouldn't time it. It's just in going back and looking at it, that's what it usually ends up being of intense study, some of it directed by mentors and coaches and teachers and parents, much of it self-directed in, in terms of interest and projects and clubs and things they want to be involved with. But scholar phase is a time where you pursue knowledge with all your heart and soul, learn as much as you possibly can, get the best education you can in every field with a mentor there to say, you know, Jeremy, you're missing, you, I noticed you're not doing math. Um, can we work that in? I love it. Here's why I love it. And, and getting them excited from, from, and inspired to do it. The fourth phase is what we call depth phase. And that really is a college level where, you know, where you go get more focus in a given arena or a given area. Um, again, the number one criticism we get at, at, uh, about Thomas Jefferson education that people initially think, ooh, I don't know about that is, wow, in love of learning, nobody's making them study anything. They're kind of, you know, you're setting an example, you're giving them opportunity, you're talking with them, you're coaching them, but don't you have to force them to study or they won't do it? And the second criticism we get is, boy, I just don't think that my kids in scholar phase would ever study that much. Because the average people who do the leadership mode literally will do between, between 10 and 14 hours a day whenever you let them, just because they're passionate and they love it. Really? It's ironic, it's ironic that those are the two criticisms. Because the reality is that if you help them fall in love with learning by the time they're 12 or 13, the natural result is that they'll want to do the study. Christopher Paolini, who we interviewed this morning, said that's how he works, is that he likes to do one subject at a time, really yeah. go in-depth into it, and that he likes to study seven or eight hours a day at that subject. Yeah, that he's he's a... My son and I just barely finished reading both of his books. We're anxiously awaiting the third one now, but we just finished both of those. And uh, just, in fact, it was not last night, but Sunday night, we just sat down for about an hour and a half and had a long discussion about the lessons and the principles we, you know, we could learn from those readings. So. Well, we uh, recorded his interview this morning, so let me know Interesting. if copy. Yeah, my son would love that. I sure love that quote that you said, all great education is self-education. It is, because that's... When, when you, when you build a system on somebody has to educate, then parents are looking at teachers and teachers are looking at, at, uh, the administrators and the administrators are looking at the school board and the school board wants the legislator to give, legislature to give them more money and everybody's pointing fingers and, and decade after decade we talk about the problems in education and where are the kids the whole time? They're at the mall. And the reality is that when you get youth, who study long hours because they love learning, then you get great education. Great education is not a complex thing. It's a matter of, of getting excited, getting inspired, putting in hard work. And by the way, that isn't to say that teachers and mentors and parents don't have an important role. They do. It's just not the teacher's role to educate the student. It's the teacher's role to inspire the student to educate himself or herself. Because when you have a teacher who's inspiring, I'll show you a group of students around that teacher in the home setting or the, or the public or the university a, a teacher who is in love with learning and, and is inspiring his or her students, you have a group of people around them who are studying hard, long hours themselves and getting a great education. There's, there's no secret fix to education except for study, and that means teachers have to inspire. 
You asked an original question, and I never answered it. I gave you the background, and now I'm forgetting what it was specifically. No, it's that... great. I'm, I'm, Rebecca, I'm taking okay. lots of notes here. I'm very inspired. You know, sometimes it's easier to understand something by understanding what it is not. Can you uh, give us, tell us what the difference is between leadership education and conveyor belt education? Yeah, I can. Um, to do that, let me just list seven things that I call the that I call the the seven keys of of uh, leadership education, the seven keys of great teaching. The first one is classics, not textbooks. Classics, not textbooks. If we study the greatest thoughts of the greatest mathematicians, why do we need a textbook that was ground out by a couple of professors at the University of South Texas? when they put together a textbook. Let's go to Einstein. Let's go to Newton. Let's go to Nicomachus and Euclid. And not to say that there aren't some textbooks which become classic. The test is a classic is a work that's worth studying. By the way, notice that I said work, not book, because classics are composed and many, many, you know, they're composed and they're built and they're constructed, many things beyond just reading. But a classic is a work that's worth studying over and over and over again because you get more out of it each time than you did the last. What about so, an earth science textbook or something like that? Yes, yeah, science happens to be one of the arenas where, where, where more of the classics are written in a textbook format because that's the way they can get published in modern times. So science is one of those areas. But again, as you read it, see if it's worth going back to over and over. And there are a number of science textbooks that are. Um, but the question is, does the book naturally dumb you down and bore you and turn you off, or is it something that pulls you in and creates passion and excitement and interest? Here's another thing about classics. See, on the conveyor belt, there's a classic list that's assigned by some expert somewhere, and everybody should follow the same list. In the leadership model, since it's your mission and your education, you get to decide which is on your classic list. So I have friends who have a totally different classic list than me, and there's things on their list that aren't on mine, and versa because for them it's worth reading over and over and over again and for me I have other things that are worth reading over and over again that's part of leadership one of the things that we've tried to do with leadership education in history we want to train leaders but we train leaders by making them sit down be quiet do what we say that's not the you don't train leaders in a conveyor belt model you train leaders by giving them opportunity to lead and be independent uh, a second difference is uh, is that the leadership system focuses on mentors not professors. The professor stands in front of the classroom, whether it's 10 or 30 or 300 students, and says, here's our subject matter, here's what I'm going to teach. I will test you on how well you learn what I've taught and what you've read and how well you, you meet this preset guidance. The mentor, on the other hand, sits down with the individual student and says, what are your interests? What are your goals? What are your passion? What do you, what do you want to create? What do you want to accomplish? What, what's your education so far and what would you like it to be? Great. Based on that vision and that plan for the future, let's build a curriculum around you that will help you to accomplish those goals. I like that. Those are the two big differences. There, there are others in methodology. There are others in... Um, you know, for example, one of them is quality, not conformity. The conveyor belt grades people based on how well they conform. So the good student is the good conformer. The, the poor student is the one who's, who's, who's less conformist. On the leadership model, you don't grade them on how well they conform to the preset model. You grade them or give them feedback based on the quality or the excellence of their work. So that you can say to them, boy, this was fabulous. Do you think it's good enough for publication yet? This is, this is wonderful. It's a real improvement over last time. Is it at the quality level that you want it to be? Again, that's mentoring and quality because the mentor is asking instead of telling, here's your A, B, C, or D. And they're asking about quality and excellence instead of about, um, instead of about how well did you conform to the preset assignment. One more. Again, there's seven of them and you can, and you can read about them all in the book, but, one more is the concept of you, not them. Um, conveyor belt education is all about the student. When there's a convention, everybody talks about the student. When there's a, you know, when when they want to change the law, everybody talks about the student. In leadership education, we don't spend as much time talking about the student as we do about the mentor, because each parent, their level of how how prepared they are to mentor each to each. Each uh, parent or each teacher, that's the thing that really determines the level of depth that you can pass on to the young person. If you're so focused on their education and their curriculum that you're not progressing, 
you really have very little to pass on to them. But if you are in, if you are in a period of life where you're passionately learning and your knowledge and your education is progressing, you're going to have so much to pass on to them that's, that's inspiring and it's interesting and it's fascinating to them. Anyway, that, that's just a few of those, but those are some of the major differences. Do you want to give us the last four? I think we have time. This is very this is very educational. Yeah, let, let me give you some others. And I didn't do these in any order. You'll find the order in the book, and I, I was skipping around. Um, another one is inspire, not require. That and, and that's hard for a lot of people. If you were trained in the conveyor belt, then when you decide to homeschool, the natural thing to do is you come home and you set up a little mini conveyor belt at home. And uh, because you were trained on the conveyor belt, and so when when somebody says education, you think conveyor belt. That's that's what it's about. That's that's what it is, and so that's what you set up. And you come home and, and you set up your mini conveyor belt, meaning at eight from eight to eight fifty you have math, then you take a ten minute break, then from nine to nine forty five you have science, and then you take a ten minute break, and then you et cetera et cetera. And and a lot of homeschoolers have learned this naturally to inspire, not require. Just because over time you learn that this is what works. But the parents come home, they, for whatever reason, decide to homeschool, they set up a mini conveyor belt in their home, they run it this way, and they absolutely hate it. The kids hate it, they don't like the structure, they don't like the, the, the mom hates it, it's really killing her. Dad usually likes it. Uh, dad's like, okay, well if we're gonna do this darn thing, then at least we're, you know, at least we're, at least we're structured. Um, now, of course, that depends on who's who's behind it and who wants to to do the homeschool thing in the first place. Um, and this usually lasts lasts somewhere between six months and and six weeks. So six weeks to six months. And sometime between six weeks and six months of the mom running hectic, trying to do a, a first grade level, a fourth grade level, and a seventh grade level, and trying to do math. Science, history, social studies, et cetera, et cetera, you know, with 10 minute breaks all day and, and the, somewhere between six weeks and, and six months, that poor mom who's frazzled out has a friend, a well-meaning friend who's a homeschooler who tells her about unschooling. And then she finds out, oh boy, now I don't have to do anything. And so, and so she just backs off and lets it be chaos for a while. Um, which again, everybody loves the chaos except dad. Who, you know, says, wow, you know, we really lost what we had. We've got to get back to it. And it can be a pendulum of going back and forth between these two over and over and over. The, the thing that solves this all is to get to, is, is to apply one of these concepts, which is, uh, structure time, not content. Structuring time, not content means that you structure in time for the study. But you don't sit down and have a preset module of everything that's going to be studied every day this week or every day this month. You have a set time and you, and you, and you're disciplined and fo- follow through on those set times. Which means that a student in core phase is going to have a shorter time than a student in a level of learning phase and scholar phase is going to have a longer time and you actually get some of the older uh, siblings helping with some of the younger. And all of that fits in with the with the concept of uh, you're structuring time not content so you are giving the time to the study and it fits in with the quality not the conformity which by the way the quality you emphasize during scholar phase and don't really work on it during core phase you you don't need to tell the 6 year old well you you know you did this wrong or that wrong it's better to give them positive feedback and keep them loving learning and excited about it but but when they're 14 and trying to write something publishable for an internet room you want to help them that the quality is up to to the speed of of what it needs to be. Um, another one is simple, not complex. The more complex our national curriculum has become, the worse the general education of our populace. The simple curriculum that trained the founders, that trained the pioneers, that trained the, the early industrialists, that trained the you know people who took on Hitler and and Stalin and stopped them, the the thing that, that that made the country great, the, the educational curriculum, was to study the great artists, the great scientists, the great mathematicians, the great historians, the great writers of literature, the great fill-in-the-blank, to discuss them, to recreate their experiments and their projects, and then to go beyond them and develop our own art and our own scientific ideas and our own mathematical proofs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Does that all make sense? In fact, I'm loving this, and at the end of this, uh, listeners, not to worry. I'm going. I'm taking notes, and I'll repeat it back to you. 
So Kim, Wonderful. You have, you have two more keys, too. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure which ones I got. I got... Uh, Let me actually, I'll repeat it if you don't mind. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, we talked about the four, first about the four phases of education. One is the core phase, uh, yes. zero to eight years. Two is the love of learning phase, yes. uh, normally from eight to twelve. Three is the scholar phase from thirteen to eighteen years old. And four is the depth phase, usually the college Yeah, roughly seven, 17 to 24, depending on their, their college experience and whether they do a profession or not. And then now we've been discussing the seven keys of great education, where you're really yeah. comparing the difference between this uh, quality great education and a yeah. Experience. If you want to do le- if you want to do leadership education, these seven keys are going to be the ones that are going to make the difference. And number one was classics, not textbooks. Two, mentors, not professors. Three, you, not them. Four, inspire, not require. Five. Simple, not complex, and now for the last two, the big drop. Uh, there's structure, time, not content. Oh, that was oh good. That was number six. That was structure, time, not content is one of them. Okay. And and finally is uh, quality, not conformity. Quality, not conformity. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I hit all seven of them, but I didn't do them in a very good order. Okay. I actually I actually have them listed out as a specific seven and try to keep them in order. So when you go to the book, you can find the you know the details and and do that. So, but as you as you find these seven keys and apply them, you'll find that leadership education increases. For example, go to a conveyor belt classroom. Um, and by the way, I visit a lot of schools and private and public and and voucher and and alternative and others. And I find that in almost all those schools, I find several teachers who are doing a great job um, and and who really, and the reason you can tell they're doing a great job is because you go in and you see that they're training leaders and it's because they've incorporated some or all of these. So go to a totally conveyor belt program and add two of these keys to a classroom environment and you'll see the leadership just increase. Add four of the keys and the, and the leadership increases even more. And and just because we homeschool doesn't mean we're off the conveyor belt. So if we're running a, a mini conveyor belt at home, then it's really valuable for us to you know to to try to incorporate these keys and move into the leadership model. Homeschool is an ideal place to train leaders. Many of the greatest leaders in history were trained in that environment, but it's because of the seven keys that it really works. So we want to make sure that we're using all of these. Then let's talk next. Then, if you would paint a picture for us. As to what a typical day is like. Yeah, exactly. That was the that was the question I never answered. I'm glad you brought it back. I should have your wife on the call. Yeah, and and it would be great to have her. Sometimes as I as I lecture at conventions or, or travel, I'll take some of my kids with me, and this is a favorite question that homeschooling parents will pull pull aside my my 13 year old Emma or my you know my 12 year old Sarah and and just pepper them with questions about their daily schedule. Um, let me let me. Uh, just give an overview and and we start in the morning with a morning devotional uh, I noticed that Dr. Covey mentioned that at the, at the very end as I logged on he uh, we have this morning devotional we all get up we do it together and uh, that usually lasts about somewhere between 30 and 40 minutes then I'll get ready and go to work and my wife will uh, with the kids prep the um, uh, do a quick pick up of the house, prep breakfast, and just go through that basic routine. And then everyone's groomed and fed, and the house is clean, and they're ready to go. And they'll sit down for what they call uh, opening devotional. It's not the same as the morning devotional. They do an opening devotional. And this is where all the students meet together for about 15 minutes, and she will do something to introduce the day. Her purpose is to get them inspired to go learn that day. Now, typically with the core phase kids, she doesn't have to do a whole lot because they're excited and, and, and they change and they want to play with the toys here and, and watch this and do that. But with the older kids, she really has to. She really watches. Do they? You know, are their eyes covered with glaze, or are they ready to learn? Are they inspired and excited to learn? Let me say something about glaze. One of our major problems in modern education is we've created a lot of glaze over our students' eyes. Glaze is what you see. I speak in a corporate setting. I'll go into to, to a corporation or a business and work with executives. I'll go into high schools or middle schools. Um, and it's interesting that the only place that I see that has more glaze than, uh, than your typical public high school is your typical big corporation. 
And that's really sad because our educational system is not just the conveyor belt, but it actually creates this glazed feeling for our work life. Glazed is where you're not excited, you're going through the motions, you wish you were doing something else, and you can't wait to get past the bare minimum so you can move on. And the key role of the teacher in any setting, and this is true in the homeschool as, as well as anywhere else, is to is to inspire those people to sit forward in their seats, to get excited, to smile, to start participating, to start raising their hand, to start kind of. Sometimes you get the youth who are just kind of bouncing because because they want to they want to communicate so much and take part. Once that glaze is gone, then it's time to end the devotional and send send people out to their studies. But it's important to get rid of you know to get rid of that glaze. Sometimes in a public school setting, it'll take me an hour to get that glaze gone. In our in our homeschool setting, we can typically get rid of that glaze in you know in three five, you know ten minutes, and then everyone's excited and, and they're ready for the day and they know they're going to go study and they're passionate about what they're studying, and they're ready to go. At that point, by the way, as they're doing that devotional, the core phase, the toddlers, many of them will just play around on the floor, or play with toys, or you know sit there and push trucks or 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 play with dolls. We find that as they're listening, they actually pick up more than than we think they are uh over time you'll you'll find that they're just they're there and you don't think they're getting anything they're just toddlers they're just core and then all of a sudden you'll ask a question that nobody has an answer for and the little core phase person will pipe up and have an answer and that's because they are listening and we just we just don't recognize that because they don't communicate that to us in the same way that, that the older students do um they'll typically spend after they've done that opening devotional, they'll typically spend about a three-hour block in the morning where the, the core phasers are involved doing math manipulatives, playing games. Uh, they'll, help, they'll help Rachel with different things. She's there. She'll have her own books, and she'll be reading uh, things that she's studying, and she'll stop and say, oh, guys, listen to this. The little ones are playing. As they're older in core phase, they're actually working on uh, drawing a painting. The older students who are in love of learning are involved in their own readings and their own and, and their own studies, and they'll stop and they'll share and they'll communicate. The scholar phase students, we've found that almost everyone who, who does leadership education has found, or the, the Thomas Jefferson model has found that the scholar phase students actually do better if you kind of let them break after the opening devotional and go somewhere where they can be on their own and really focus on their studies, so they don't have as much interruption. That'll go until lunch. They'll stop for lunch. They'll come back for a session in the afternoon. Typically, the core phasers won't be involved in that. They'll just be doing other things. But the love of learners will come back and participate. And, uh, and, and they're doing whatever projects they want. They're doing whatever studies they want. If they want to come to mom and say, correct this workbook that I did or help me with this project or I'd like to throw a tea party, who could we invite, help me plan it, they do that. Um, the core phase, the, the scholar phasers will go, you know, through lunch and into the afternoon and oftentimes into the evening. And then when dad gets home, he'll sit down with the core, with, with the scholar phasers and they give him an account, they give me an accounting of what they covered that day. They write it up at least one page of just written summary of what you did. They're free to study what they want to. Um, and then if I see that there's problems or their mom sees that there's gaps, we'll sit down with them. We'll talk about the gaps. We'll say, it's okay for you to skip math for the, for the next couple of months, but, but you realize this is an important part of your education. At what point, and, and we'll talk about it and discuss it. And then we also realize, you not them, if, if, if they're just not really interested in math, then mom and dad will say, you know what, let's, let's, let's read Newton's Principia. Let's read, uh, flatland. Let's read The Chosen or something that pulls in mathematical principles and let's start setting that example. Let's start inspiring and let's start talking to them about the mathematical things we're learning. Boy, I'm talking too much, aren't I? No, I, lo- I really like that idea okay. that if your child doesn't have an interest in math, you model that by becoming interested, interested yourself. Well, that's the difference between the mentor and the professor. In fact, this is a fun exercise to do if you've got a pen in front of you. Draw two circles next to each other and put mentor in one of them and student in the other. And then, in a different place, draw two circles, one on top of the other one, and put professor or teacher in the top one and student in the bottom one. Here's the difference. The professor spends his whole time or her whole time or the teacher trying to get the trying to get the student into the professor's circle so that they can learn the area of expertise that, that, that the teacher professes. In the other two circles, it's very different. The mentor 
sees that their purpose is to help the student get a great education, and so the mentor voluntarily goes over into the student's circle, studies the things that the student is interested and passionate and excited about so that they can then inspire them for the other things they need to learn. They're very different models of education. The one trains followers. The other one trains leaders, naturally. I love this. Dr. DeMille, do you mind if we open up the call and take some questions? Let's do that. Happy to. Excellent. We've been talking with Oliver DeMille about Thomas Jefferson Education. Uh, We have 15 minutes left, so we're going to open up the call. Uh, Callers, if you would, please press star 6 to uh, come out of mute mode. Star 6 is what mutes your phone. It also unmutes it. So if you're in mute mode, go ahead and press star 6. Ask your question, and then I will go back into this nice, quiet conference mode, and I'll repeat your question so that everyone can hear it. Here we go. Hello. First question, please. Just a moment, please. Uh, If you are uh, not asking a question, please press star six on your phone. I know it's sometimes hard to tell. I can hear background noises here with uh, a lot of children. There we go. That's better. So if if you're not asking the question, thank you for muting out your phone. Star six to mute. And now, oh, thank you. That's just excellent. Now we can take the first question. Go ahead, ahead, caller. Go ahead. Question number one for um, Dr. Demille. Okay, I've got a question. Yes, go ahead. Um, my kids are in the regular school system, and I'm wondering how you can do leadership training um, while they're still in a regular public system, if it's possible. Oh, that's an excellent question. I, I think I just cut you off my apologies. Uh, her question was, um, her children are in the regular school system, but she still wants to give them uh, leadership education. How can she do that when they're going to school? Yeah, that's such a great question, because... One of the major roles of parents is to help their students, you know, be leaders. We need so many leaders in our society. And if we limit it to just the homeschoolers, then the homeschoolers are going to be sorry because over time then the whole society goes one way and, and the leaders are going a different. Um, the key to this is for the parent to get a superb leadership education herself or himself. And, and that's a simple matter of of settling down and starting to study the classics on your own. Again, in our modern times, when we talk about education, everybody wants us, everybody wants answers that tells the parents or the teachers how to do things with their kids. But the real answer of our generation is that the teachers and parents of our generation really need a great leadership education. If we had it, we would naturally pass it on. So the key to it, regardless of where your child sits to go to school, is for you to start getting the leadership education. And I know that that right now is like this big, you know, thing of how do I do this? Well, if you're, if you're, if you're fairly self-motivated and self-directed, then it's a simple matter of finding some good classics lists and just starting to study. Not that you have to accept that, you know, what somebody said was a classic is, but you start with those lists and then you start to come up with your own and you start to come up with your own commentaries and your own thoughts. And by the way, there are classics in every field. There are art classics and music classics and history and science and literature. And In fact, literature is one that most of us know because it's one place that the conveyor belt schools still use some classics here and there in, in their English department um, and sometimes in foreign language. But there's classics in every single field. And the way that the parent starts giving the leadership education for the child, pure and simple, is the same way that a homeschooler would, and that is start reading a bunch of classics yourself. Once you've read three or four math classics, three or four science classes, classics, three or four history classics, three or four, once you've done three or four classics in a number of these fields, you are going to have so much that you want that young person to know, and regardless of where they're going to school, it just naturally becomes part of the dialogue, part of the discussion. They see you reading. They wonder what you're learning. You tell them, you tell them why it's so exciting to you. So the key, the, the first step is for you to get started. Now, in the, in the book, I actually outline uh, 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 like, a, like a first-year plan of where to start and where to go. But just in terms of where to get started, it's for you to start reading all the classics. One of the things I did for myself, Dr. Mill, is I got a three-ring binder. 
and I printed out your list of classics, and then I also found there was a list of, at Harvard had their list of classics, and then uh, Jack Canfield had a list of self-help books that he thought were a classic. Yeah. So I printed all these out, and I put that under my reading list tab. And then I wanted to give myself a good feel for uh, history, kind of the timeline, the flow of history. And I liked the way that it was told in storyteller fashion in those um, those books, what every kindergartner should know, what every first grader yes. should know. Yeah, the Hearst series, which the is Hearst very series. good. So I printed out the history section of each one of those books, and I put it in my history tab. And so I've yeah. just been, and I've been kind of keeping track of, of goals and stuff like that. That and my children see me, you know, checking off. The That's right. And being excited key, about it. The key is to get started. And and here's a and here's a hint. Don't don't start with somebody else's big list in subjects that you don't have any interest in. Start in classics that that you can get passionate about, that you can get interested in, that you can get excited about. A lot of times we treat this like the first book I choose is the only book I'm ever going to choose. We need to read a lot of different things to have that, that classical leadership education. And the way to pass it on to our kids wherever they're being educated is for us to get it. Because when we've got it, we'll know what to recommend to them. And when they come home and say, well, I have this assignment, we'll say, well, that's so interesting. Let me show you what somebody, you know, a couple of thousand years ago said about that. And we can pull it out and discuss it. And it just pulls them in and gets them excited. So the first place to start leadership education with our kids is to start becoming more leadership educated ourselves. First time I tried to read, I tried to read um, Henry David Thoreau on Walden's Pond. I had people raving about it, how they changed their life, and by golly, I couldn't understand it at all. I would read pages, and I said, I told my husband, I go, what's wrong with me? I can't understand anything here. So I decided I would go back and I would uh, maybe start with Baby Step, and I started reading the children's classic books, yeah. like A Little Princess or Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm and A Jane Eyre and all of those. Exactly, the simple stuff, the end of Green Gables, the, you know, for boys, things like Louis L'Amour. It's interesting. We'll, we'll walk by a kid who's reading science fiction and we'll say, you know, what are you reading that junk for? Why don't you read something good? Or why don't you, you know. And the reality is that a lot of those books have a lot of classical material in them. Westerns, between eight, sorry, between 1900 and 1960, the books that had the most classical content in them. The genre of writing that had the most classical content in them were, were Westerns. Since, since 1960, it's been science fiction and fantasy. And sometimes we forget that, you know, that, that the upper, the upper class parents wouldn't let their kids in Elizabethan England go to this upstart Shakespeare's plays because it was too popular and too, you know, and they, they just thought it was ridiculous that it was so popular and everyone was getting behind it. Why don't you read the good old stuff? There are classics being written and composed and, and constructed today as much as there ever were in history. And, and reality is many of our kids are going to be the ones who write the classics of the 21st century and who compose the classics of the 21st century. Right. But it's going, to be a, it's going to be such a challenge for them to do that if they're limited to a conveyor belt perspective of education. I like uh, reading the classics to my children at night, too. Ever since they were babies, I've been reading um, you know, Swiss Family Robinson, Treasure Island, um, all of these from a very young age. That, by the way, that's so key, to read it to them. People who, people who read classics tend to be, who really get into them and love them and love the language of them, very often are people who had them read to them when they were younger. I know. Um, I've, I've had students come into I've had students come into class at Georgia College, where we're we're doing this intense study of all these classics, and they just you know beginning freshmen who just they'll read a Shakespeare uh, a phrase a stanza and they totally get it and they can explain all kinds of details, and I've learned that I can pick that out right off the bat the ones who were read to in the in that language as young people because you can understand harder books you know, by being read to than you can for reading yourself. Yeah. You know, I mean, look, look at result. look at math, for example. If you people say, "Well, you don't don't you need to learn the math too, so you can do the you know uh, do the proofs, do the problems." Of course you do, but where do you think you're going to learn that more effectively in a textbook or by reading Newton, slowing down and really taking the time to understand what he said? I tell you, if you go through Principia Mathematica and really understand it, the the, the mathematical learning that occurs there is huge. But don't, but don't start with that. I mean, don't hang up and go start with Principia Mathematica. If, if math is the place you want to start, start with the stories of the great mathematicians. Start with the problems they were facing when they came up with the great math concepts. 
Before we open up to take some more questions, would you give us some of your resources and tell us how we can find them? For example, your book is called A Thomas Jefferson Education, and I know that it's available at www.gwc.edu. Yeah. Now, that GWC stands for George Wythe. George Wythe College. Yes. How are you pronouncing that? It's George Wythe. It's it's actually spelled Wythe, W-Y-T-H-E, but pronounced Wythe. Well, thank you. Please tell us a little bit about your college Um, and how homeschoolers can find out more information about it. Yeah, the website is the best place to go, uh, and you just gave it, gwc.edu. Uh, we offer um, we offer a bachelor's degree in statesmanship, which is really a it's it's a broad liberal arts classical leadership. I mean, it's a combination of history and science and math and art and lead, it's a leadership program. It's designed to train leaders for community and family and business. Uh, we train entrepreneurs and you know and, and also for other facets of society. Uh, we have a master's in edu- a master's degree in education, a master's degree in political economy, and then we have a PhD program in constitutional law. Uh, and they can see all of that on the website. The other thing besides the book, which I would just, for someone who's interested and says, yeah, leadership education is my thing, this is making sense to me, besides the book, Thomas Jefferson Education, the other thing that I would recommend, just right off the bat, is our Face-to-Face with Greatness seminar series. Um, and that's also available on the website. You can pull it up under seminars. It'll show you what cities and towns on what dates we're giving the, the seminars. But it's a it's a three-seminar series where we actually sit down with with teachers and parents who want to do the the who want to understand the four phases better and who want to apply the seven keys and it's a hands-on workshop where before the workshop you have you have assigned classics that you read and then we bring you together in a in a classroom setting with other teachers and parents and you have the opportunity to go through and have an experience. How would you do a leadership discussion about Jane Eyre? How would you do a leadership discussion about Newton? How would you do a leadership discussion about, you know, uh, about any great classic out there? And how would you tie it into all these other areas? So it's, it's a hands-on workshop. And it runs over the course of a year to 18 months. So you take three seminars during that time period. And the people that we've seen who have really taken this and run with it and been able to do it in their families and make it work, most of them have, have not only read the book and tried to apply it, but have come to the seminars where the main, the best thing about them is you're sitting in a room with 30 to, you know, 60 other people who are trying to do the same thing at the same time. And so as you're, as you're going through the hands-on training, you're doing it with other people who are facing similar challenges with similar uh, children at similar ages. So it, it, it's a, that would be my major recommendation of a resource is that seminar program in the book. Where are these uh, seminars located and where is uh, George Wythe College located? George Wythe College is in Cedar City, Utah, which is, which is almost, almost in Arizona and almost in Nevada. It's just down in the, in the very corner of the state. And it's, uh, um, it's in, it, Cedar City is a Shakespeare town. It's got the Shakespeare Festival here. It's really close to Zion Canyon and Bryce Canyon and the Grand Canyon. Uh, it's a very scenic, beautiful, you know, kind of, kind of resort town feel. And, uh, and the seminars are held all over the, all over the North America at this point. Oh, they are. So more in more in the west than in the east, but we do have things in we've had things in uh, all down the east coast and some in the Midwest. Um, not as many in the east as we do in the west, but we have a lot in the west and also in Canada. Well, wonderful! I can't believe that we're out of time already. It's such yeah, that flew by, didn't it? I'm going to open up the call at the very end so that people can say uh, goodbye and thank you to you. Can, can I say one more thing just to close? Sure. Do you yeah, mind? Yeah. I, I just I just want to say this. We live in a time period where it's very easy for our educational system and our career model system to convince us that we're all just regular people. And the reality is that everybody that you have ever met, everybody you will ever meet, is a full-on genius. There, there's, there's nothing less than a genius in human beings. Some of us decide not to develop it very much. But it's in there. It's in everybody. That said, simply don't settle for anything less than the very best, the highest quality, genius education. The kids in your homes, they're geniuses. They deserve that kind of education. That's all. Thanks for your time today. Wonderful. Thank you very much for joining us. We certainly appreciate your time. And callers, it's been a a big day today. And I hope you'll join us again tomorrow. Tomorrow our guests include uh, Fat Matt Matthew Bennett, 
he's talking about the real skinny on fat and talking about the um, the obesity epidemic we're having in the United States from an academic perspective and uh, how the solution is really so very simple for ourselves and for our children. Uh, next, we're going to be talking uh, to Joanne Calderwood about the self-teaching method of homeschooling. And then the last interview for tomorrow is uh, Does Your Child Have a Hidden Reading Problem? with Pat Wyman. Uh, she has a free uh, vision screening, reading screening that you can do on her website. Uh, you might want to take that uh, before the interview, and I think you'll get even more out of it. So uh, thank you very much for your time today and certainly look forward to uh, hearing your voices tomorrow. I'm going to open up the call so that you can say uh, goodbye and thank you to our guest this last hour, uh, Oliver DeMille, talking about a Thomas Jefferson education. Yes, thanks. That was incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was wonderful. Thanks. It was awesome. Thanks. You rocked the mill. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I enjoyed being here. That was terrific. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. I feel so inspired. Thanks also, Rebecca. Oh, my pleasure. Does anyone have any questions before for me before we close for the evening? Hi, Rebecca. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'd, like, I'd like to talk to you. Um, about a, a, a system, uh, another another possibility of doing way of doing these calls. Oh, thank you. Would you like to send me an email? Would that be a good way? Uh, yeah, that, actually, that would be great. I'll My do that. My email address is Rebecca R E B E C C A at homeschool dot com, and I, I welcome your suggestions. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you again, Doctor Demille, and a thank you to Shannon for setting this up for us. We hope you have enjoyed this special presentation from homeschool.com. For a copy of this program or any homeschool.com program, visit our website at www.homeschool.com. At homeschool.com, you'll find the information, resources, and support you need to make your homeschooling better than ever. Yeah, yeah.